Welcome, welcome. I'm teaching from home today because I live on top of a big hill and I just didn't even want a chance not being able to get back up it today. And so I, I stayed home. So uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful snow here, as we were saying before. Thank you for being here. Let's study some Torah together. Uh, I'm going to say the blessing. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of the universe, who sanctifies us with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of studying Torah together. I hope everyone's doing pretty well, all things considered. And uh, I'm looking forward to spending this hour with you. The Torah portion this week is Truma, chapter 25 of the book of Exodus, 25, 26, and, and some of 27. And it describes the instructions, the detailed instructions that Moses receives in order to construct the Mishkan. So Moses is deep in the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai, communing with the, communing with the creator, who downloads these um, instructions for how to build a Mishkan. Mishkan means dwelling place. Again, for, the, uh, for those unfamiliar, the Hebrew shachen means to dwell. It means a neighbor. A shchuna is a neighborhood in modern Hebrew. And a mishkan is a dwelling place because le shachen means to dwell. So the mishkan is the place that Moses is instructed to have the children of Israel create so that there will be a dwelling place for the divine presence in the midst of, in their midst. Uh, it's a beautiful image, isn't it? And so uh, I should add that the Hebrew name for the indwelling presence of God is the Shekhinah. Shekhinah, Mishkan, Lishachin, you hear the same root. Uh, the Shekhinah is the, is, the, is the aspect of God that we feel dwelling among us. And the most uh, famous line in this parsha comes right at the beginning where it says, Be'asuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham. Make for me a sanctified dwelling place so that I might dwell in your midst. And uh, from the earliest roots of Judaism, this is understood to be analogical, that is, this isn't a literal, single, physical place, but it's a structure that they build, which serves as an analogy, a microcosm for our relationship with the divine. And over time in Jewish history, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm not gonna do that today. Over time, in ancient sources, you see the Mishkan analogized to the cosmos, to the human being, to the community, to the holy mountain. It's like the journey 
The Mishkan represents the spiritual journey that we each must take to find God within us, whether individually, in the community, or in the creation, right? So, therefore, when it says, Vishachanti bitocham, that I might dwell in your midst, as many of us will remember, bitocham um, can also mean that I might dwell within you. And the answer to the question, which one is it, is yes, right? There we go again. That's what happens when you enter the world of analogical thinking as opposed to um, a logical progression. A logical progression, A plus B must equal C. But in an analogical progression, A equals B equals C in terms of allowing oneself to, to apply the experience to all the levels of, 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 um, of uh, existence. Um, so again, what for me as a new initiate to Torah, as a child and as a, as a college student, I didn't understand. And I found this portion just, just deathly. The details are like the details are so specific, the blueprint so carefully laid out. It's like, why? And that doesn't concern me at all anymore. In fact, I revel in the descriptions because now I know it's a they're describing how to build a home for the divine presence. And so everything is symbolic. And that's how it's meant to be read. And that's how it was meant to be approached and experienced even going all the way back to the beginning. Um, okay, having said that, uh, the, the, so the Parsha then goes on to describe not only how to build a Mishkan, but how to build all the symbolic um, items that occupy the Mishkan. Um, the Ark that is in the Holy of Holies, that is the centerpiece. The, here, I'm gonna share a, a diagram with you just for a second so you can get a visual of this. Hold on, I actually wanna show you this. Okay, whoops. Can everybody see that picture? Yes, okay, good. The description is to um, create an enclosure. That's the external fence around the whole holy enclosure. There's a gate over here, which one can enter and in the external courtyard, there is an altar for the sacrifices to God. And then as you approach this enclosure, which is the Mishkan itself, there's a washing bowl in which you purify yourself. And then you go through this entrance into what's called the holy space. And in the holy space, you find a golden menorah, a seven-branched candlestick, the table for the bread, the show bread that was part of the offering. And then this is a curtain called the paroche. And right in front of the curtain, it's over here, but I think it belongs over here, is an altar for burning incense, which created an aromatic smoke screen between the holy and the inner sanctum called the 
holy of holies. And in the inner sanctum, <clears throat> there was this beautiful ark, this golden lined cabinet that contained the two tablets that Moses will bring down from Mount Sinai. So the, the Ark of the Covenant, if you ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's it, right? The Ark of the Covenant um, that, um, in which is placed the tablets that represent, if you remember me speaking about this uh, in previous weeks, the sacred relationship we have committed ourselves to with the creator. The Levites are allowed in this outer courtyard. Only certain Kohanim, the priests are allowed in this inner holy space and only the high priest, the, the Kohen Gadol is allowed once a year into this inner sanctum in order to ask for the people's forgiveness on Yom Kippur. Um, so, so there, I just wanted to share that diagram. So you could have a visual of it. Now, what I wanna to do today <clears throat> is I wanna share a video with you. It's created by a man named Rabbi David Foreman. And if we have time, I wanna show you part one and part two. So you're gonna get a lot of teaching from him today instead of me, but I was so, I've watched it a few times already. I just think it's marvelous. So Rabbi David Foreman is an Orthodox rabbi. He's modern Orthodox. He lives in um, Woodmere in Long Island. He's in the heart of the modern Orthodox world. And if you're not familiar, um, that's different than the ultra Orthodox world. You'll be able to see from David Foreman's presentation that he's very open to, to um, um, secular science, to all kinds of, uh, it, and he's a wonderful teacher. And for several years, he's been creating these animated, animated video presentations of his Torah teachings. It's called Aleph Beta. And um, I look at them occasionally. I just think he's a marvelous teacher of Torah. And he takes us on a journey into the meaning of this Parsha that I thought was just marvelous. And I wanna share with you, I think we'll watch part one and then we will talk about it. And then if there's time, we'll watch part two because I just thought he did a beautiful job. Now, what you need to know about him is he, he lives in a very rationalistic community. So in describing spiritual concepts, and the mystical concepts, which he's going to do, he has to like take his people there carefully. So you'll see that in a way where I can make, I, I make ridiculously uh, grand statements and don't feel like I need to apologize for them. But no, you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, so you'll see that about him. And um, I just really, really like this teacher. Right, Sylvia. So you might show them this website sometime. Uh, I'm gonna share it with you in a moment. So the other thing I want you to know about to prepare to watch this is that there is this description in the instructions Moses is getting to when you build the ark that's gonna hold the tablets, you make the lid called the kaporet and you put two 
cherubim, each on one end of the ark cover, who um, guard it. Now, a cherub became a, a baby with wings in um, the Renaissance um, because uh, it was, from my research, it was a confusion of um, different imagery uh, with the flying, but the cherubim in the Bible, in the Torah, are fierce creatures. They have giant wings, they have a body of an animal, maybe a lion, they might have, they have a human face. It's the Sphinx, everybody. All over the ancient Near East, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Palestine, Israel, Syria, all over in the ancient world of the ancient Near East, there was the, these creatures that are called cherubim in the um, Torah that seem to guard the throne of the of the god, the gods, right? And um, this is also true clearly in the Torah. These creatures, um, <clears throat> it says over and over in the Torah, the cherubim are at the foot of God's throne. And it's, it also seems clear that the ark is, is referred to as God's footstool, that there is the invisible, the, the invisible deity looming over us and the cherubim protecting or as like the lions of Judah, I bet are a, um, maybe a, a kind of a um, descendant of these two lions that you see on either side of, uh, of um, uh, much Jewish imagery in synagogues. So um, the cherubim occupy this crucial place in the metaphorical universe that is being constructed here. And so I want you to keep that in mind. I won't say more, I'll let him teach you about it. So uh, with your permission, I'm gonna share this 10 minute video and then um, jot down questions, thoughts, or put them in the chat. And then we'll talk about it afterwards and see what, what, what uh, we think about it. Okay, everybody, I, I won't explain more. I'll share instead. Oh, just one sec. I want to optimize. Um, Gwen, where was that? Uh, Stop oh, the share. You need to optimize just before you share. Thank you. Just a sec, everybody. Advanced. Share sound. Video. Share. Oh, I see. That was my problem. Cancel. Uh, I think I got it. People give me a thumbs up if uh, you hear this. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Rabbi David Foreman, and welcome to Parsha Truma. You are watching 
this week and next week, I want to take you into the Mishkan. It's a journey, I suppose, for myself as much as it is for you. I do not consider myself much of a Kabbalist, but I think if you pay attention to the words of the text, they lead you to the brink of some fascinating ideas that, for lack of a better word, I'm going to describe as mystical. You'll make up your own mind, I suppose, when you hear it. Let's kind of jump in and see what we make of this. The vehicle for the journey I'd like to take you on is an analysis and a discussion of the Kruvim in the Mishkan. According to the biblical text, there were these angelic figures, cherubs, that appear several times in the Mishkan. Now, most famously, they appear in this week's Parsha on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had a cover known as the Kaporet. It was a solid gold cover, and out of one chunk of gold, there was supposed to be fashioned these angelic images of these two Kruvim, almost like children with their wings arching out towards one another, providing a kind of sheltering presence over the Aron, over the Ark itself. It was from between these Kruvim that the voice of God would speak to Moses once the tabernacle was constructed. So this is the most famous place where we encounter the Kruvim and the Mishkan, but it's not the only place. We also find them two other places, one of them on the Parochet. Now the Parochet was a kind of veil. It was woven out of beautiful tapestry. Woven into the veil was supposed to be these representations of Kruvim as well. This veil was placed between the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was, and the rest of the Mishkan to separate between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the Mishkan. That's how the verse describes what the parochet is doing. So the parochet had kruvim. And then one more place you encounter the kruvim, the uriot. There were these curtains that formed a kind of roof of the mishkan. They draped out from the roof over onto the sides of the walls. In the tapestry for these curtains, there had to be kruvim inlaid in them as well. And the question is why? Why are there kruvim in the mishkan at all? And why are they, in particular, in these three places in the Mishkan? You don't find them etched into the menorah. You don't find kruvim on any of the altars. You don't find them inlaid into the shulchan. You don't find them anywhere else, but you find them here. You find them on the kaporet, the covering for the ark. You find them on the veil, the parochet. You find them on the uriot. Why are they here in the Mishkan, and why are they here in these three particular places? This is the mystery that I'd like to use to begin our journey into understanding the Mishkan from a whole new perspective. Any discussion of the Kruvim and the Mishkan, I think, would have to take some account of the last time we've met Kruvim. We really only meet them one other time in the entire Torah. It's at the gates of the Garden of Eden. When God decides to banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, never to return, he sets up two cherubs with a flaming double-edged sword to guard back the way towards the tree of life to make sure that Adam and Eve will never return. And it would seem that in some way there must be a connection between those cherubs at the gates of Eden and the cherubs here in the Mishkan. In addition, another thing to keep in mind is the contrast between these two sets of cherubs. The first ones are holding that flaming double-edged sword. There's no sword being held by the cherubs in the Mishkan. What do we make of that? Okay, so now to help us understand all of this, I want to take you back to an idea that I introduced in Parshat Vayakel. If you haven't seen that video yet, I recommend you take a look. It's actually one of my favorite of all the Parsha videos that we've produced. 
It's really a very simple yet elegant idea. What are we really doing when we create this tabernacle, this Mishkan? We are emulating God. Man was created to emulate God. He was made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of the Almighty, in the image of the Creator. But what does it mean to create like God created? Well, let's ask, what did God create? God made a world for us, a universe for us. God carved out a little bit of everything and made a little apartment specifically for us. God lives in the world beyond our own, in a world beyond space and time, in some world that we can't understand. And God carved out a little piece of that so that the one that he could love would be able to live. And we, in turn, reciprocate by creating an environment for him, a little apartment in our world. We take our everything, the world of space and time that we call the universe, and we carve out a little space, and we build it. And we call it a mishkan, a place that God can be. That's how we reciprocate God's great act of love. And in order to make that apartment work, we too have to abide by laws. The laws of physics don't make any sense for God. God doesn't need them. God has no use for the laws of physics. But he pays attention to them so that we can have a place to live. And we too abide by godly laws. The laws of Tuma and Tara and Kodesh and Chol. Laws that make no sense to us because we want to make an environment that works for God. These are godly laws. We make a space for God, just like God made a space for us. Okay, now let's take off from that idea for a moment. If the Mishkan is really intended to be the place that we make for God in this world, then it has a prototype, doesn't it? Because the world once had a place like that. It was the Garden of Eden. Why, indeed, was the Garden of Eden called a garden? A garden is a little cultivated place that the master of the garden makes for himself, for his own enjoyment. Eden was God's garden in our world. Back in the original garden, when Adam and Eve hear the voice of God walking through, strolling through the garden in the afternoon, what kind of imagery is that? It's almost as if God, the master of the garden, is doing what people do in gardens. They take a stroll in the afternoon. They're enjoying their garden. God was inviting Adam to join him in that stroll, but instead they were hiding. That was the story of the forbidden fruit. We talked about these ideas, by the way, in Parshat Bukhukota. You can take a look at that video for a more extensive elaboration of this. So after the sin of the forbidden fruit, what happens? Well, that brings us right to the Kruvim. God stations the Kruvim, these angels, with the flaming sword to make sure that we never get back to that place. It's not a place we can live in anymore after eating from the Tree of Knowledge. The garden that God made is no longer accessible for us. Now we have to build the garden. And when we do, the Kruvim are back. But they don't have a sword in their hands anymore because they're not there to keep us away. They're there to usher us in. But how exactly do they usher us in? That brings us to the three times the Kruvim appear in the Mishkan. The curtains, the veil, and the covering for the ark. What are all these things? They're partitions. They create separations. The curtains that create the roof for the Mishkan separate the Mishkan from the rest of the world. 
the parochet, separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the Mishkan. And the kaporet, the covering for the ark, separates what's inside from what's outside from the rest of the Holy of Holies. Now ask yourself one final question. Three partitions that separate. If that's what we make when we create an apartment for God, what did God do when he created the apartment for us? The apartment for us was the universe itself. Go back to the creation story when that universe got made, and you will find three separations. First, God separates between light and darkness. Then, God separates between waters to create air, to create sky. And then, God separates day from night using the luminaries in the heavens to allow human beings a consistent experience of time, to understand what days are, months, years, through the cycles of darkness and light brought to us through the heavenly bodies. God made three separations to set up our world. We make three separations to set up the little world that we're making for him. And isn't it interesting that on each of these partitions that we create, we meet Kruvim, the angelic beings that were part of a fourth separation in creation, a separation that shouldn't have been there, a separation that locks us out of God's world forever, locks us out of the garden. The instruments of that very separation, the Kruvim with their flaming sword, they show up one more time, but without the sword, ushering us back in to this garden that we create for God. The Kruvim bring us through the partitions, from one separation, the curtains, to the other, the parochet, to the kaporet, where we finally encounter the voice of God itself. It's the voice we human beings have a faint memory of going all the way back to the original garden. When Adam and Eve encountered God in the garden, how did they encounter him? They heard the voice of God walking through the garden in the afternoon. The Kruvim bring us back there. They bring us home. All of this, I think, is just a taste of the secrets that the Kruvim and the three separations that they adorn hold for us. I invite you back next week as we continue the journey into unraveling their secrets. Whoops. This is Rabbi David Foreman, and welcome to Parsha. There we go. Um, there we go. Sorry about that. So I just want to say that one of the things I love about this is it's such good Torah. Now, what do I mean by that? He is using the text in the way that Jews have developed over centuries and centuries to make, to find real correlations by this intensely close reading, but then expand from that close reading into big spiritual teachings, if you follow what I mean. So indeed, the only other time we hear about cherubim in the Torah 
is that they are guarding the gate to the Garden of Eden, Eden with an ever-turning fiery sword so that we can't re-enter it. And then the next time we hear about the Kruvim, it's in this description of how to build a dwelling place for God. And so he takes that insight, which I'd never thought of before, and weaves this beautiful tale, this beautiful rendering of what the Torah is trying to teach us. Then he goes even farther. It's crystal clear from the descriptions about the Mishkan that each of those places where the Kruvim dwell are indeed barriers that one must cross through in order to get closer to the voice of God. And uh, so he looks in Genesis and he notes that it, it says three times in chapter one of Genesis, and God made a separation by Yavdel between the first one between light and dark, the second one between um, sky and waters, and the third one between uh, um, the luminaries marking the distinctions between day and night and seasons. So he sees that, oh, three times it says God divided in the beginning, and three times the Kruvim represent thresholds that one must cross over into a more rarefied um, uh, state of being until one finally enters the Holy of Holies. And what I didn't mention when you read the Parsha, and I should have mentioned, is that the Kruvim on the lid of the ark, it says, and God will speak to you from between those Kruvim. So God's voice, whatever that is, emerges from between those Kruvim, uh, and it is that place of um, returning to the garden returning to that undifferentiated consciousness that we yearn for, that we taste from time to time, but that as beings who've eaten from the tree of knowledge, it's not, our, it's not something we can experience at all times, in fact, but we need to somehow um, um, uh, make up to, in order to be everything we're meant to be, we have to create a dwelling place for that experience right in the middle of our center of our beings and the center of our community and sanctify it, memorialize it, remember it, honor it, sustain it. And I'll add one more um, beautiful part of the descriptions in, uh, that it says about to build the Mishkan in the first verse of this part, it says, and um, tell the children of Israel to bring me gifts, says God. And you shall accept these gifts on my behalf from every person whose heart is so moved. So there's something about building this dwelling place that cannot be enforced or legislated. It has to come from our deepest desire and generosity. Sylvia said, uh, what does the number three symbolize? I don't know, Sylvia, except that Boy, don't we love threes in the ways we tell stories? I don't really know. Maybe someone else has a clearer answer to that. But triads are just everywhere in, in 
when we try to describe almost anything. Um, Sarah, maybe this is too big of a question. There isn't too big a question here. That's sort of the point where we're discussing um, how we bring the divine into our finite existence, right? That's what the Torah is. The Torah is not asking small questions. <laughs> On the contrary, given all of this, can you say anything more about notions of separation, barriers, boundaries in the Torah? Yes, I, I can. Let me just, um, and why do we need the separations? Says Deborah. I don't know why we need them, but it appears that we need them because that is our experience of life, right? We need to set, the child needs to separate to some degree from the mother in order to live a full existence, right? And then longs for the mother, right? It's the last thing so many people say on their deathbed, I'm gonna see my mother, right? Uh, and yet we couldn't have lived our life if we didn't make distinctions and separations. And so it's the nature of things. That's how I see it. Uh, the Torah is describing the nature of things. We begin in this garden of undifferentiated bliss. And then it appears we need to be separated from it in order to become people. And then in the process, of living our lives, we yearn to return to that experience. And so religious systems like this, this symbolic map of the Mishkan, uh, give us, give us a, a, a spiritual roadmap to, uh, um, to uh, um, navigate back towards that experience without without sacrificing our structures and distinctions. But, some, you know, because otherwise we, we couldn't continue to exist. And that's how I see it. That's, and in Jewish terms, time is sanctified in that way because we go regularly from the mundane time of separateness and interaction into the holy times of unity, you know, so, Space is designed that way so that we create sacred spaces which we enter intentionally in order to rejoin the oneness. Um, and um, so physical space, time, and um, what's the other dimension anyway? <laughs> it recapitulates on all those, those levels. Um, I hope that helps address the question. Uh, and um, uh, speaking of Mishkan, my friend Andrea, who is joining us lives in Texas. Hi, Andrea. And is helping neighbors and has more info on how others like us can help from afar. She can share it if she's so moved. Thank you, Rob. Um, and, uh, Ellen says, I was taught through, oh, is this uh, Ellen or, yeah, Ellen, Rabbi Ellen. Three repetitions complete a prayer ritual. That's why I sing Anna Elna three times to complete the prayer for healing. Oh, thank you. That's uh, the question of threes. Thank you. Uh, 
uh, non-dualistic. Yes, Paul, I, uh, we are dealing with our simultaneous experience of the universe being non-dualistic, but also dualistic. Um, because we humans exist in dimensionality. We just do. We eat food that's outside us and it nourishes us and becomes us. It's just the way it is. Yet we, ex we, we, we uh, intuit and the Torah assumes as true that there is a unitive, non-dualistic energy that creates it all and that we wanna be in relationship with. So we don't forget where we come from. And the Mishkan is trying to answer that need. Um, uh, also maybe why the priestly blessing is in three parts. It feels like a completion to us. Yes, I'm sorry, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah, threes are beautiful. Mother, you know, I'll say mother, father child, you know, all of those um, classic triads that make up our sense of how things come to be. Um, excellent. And the triangle is one of the most stable forms. Yes, I'm familiar with that image too. Yes, Rabbi Ellen pointed out the priestly blessing is in three parts. And uh, they face each other in the art cover. This is more about the cherubim. They face, from Ellen Weaver, they face each other and the ark cover, never touching, but filled with holy longing and that amazing energy called chashmal. In the, another, the other most famous time where the cherubim appear is in Ezekiel's vision of the divine chariot, which has cherubim and chashmal, which is like some kind of flashing energy and, the, the, and God seated atop. Uh, it's a beautiful vision. Uh, like that space between God and Adam's fingers on the Sistine Chapel. Oh, isn't that a beautiful metaphor? Thank you, Ellen. Yes, there are teachings about the cherubim. Can we go over a few minutes today? If you need to leave, uh, but I think, I, I think I'm going to need to get some extra time because I do want to show you part B of his, um, of, of his teaching. So forgive me, but I'm going to go over a little bit today. Um, the teachings about the cherubim are that they are facing each other. The Torah is very explicit about that and that their wings are protecting the space and that God spoke to Moses from between the cherubim. That almost touching, yes, that of connection. And uh, the Midrash then says, and it really goes for it, it says, when the cherubim are facing each other, that's when God would speak. If the true, if Israel was not connected, if the children of Israel had turned away from God, the cherubim would be turned away from each other and there'd be no voice of God. And so they give the cherubim in the Midrash this actual sort of life of turning away when there's no love and of turning towards each other when the love is full. And then there's even a Midrashic statement that when most would go in there, the cherubim would be engaged in sexual embrace. Um, again, as a metaphor for um, uh, that Hebrew word yada, to know fully is also the word that says, is the Hebrew word for knowing an intimate partner, for 
for you know sexual intercourse. So I'm just laying that all out um, uh, from Texas. Beto O'Rourke's group called Powered X People, is that right? Is doing welfare calls to the elderly. And you can it's join it. Powered by people. Ah, good. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank I you. hope you're okay. Where are you in Texas? I'm in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and we were 60 hours no power and three days no water. Our swimming pool froze over, so that wasn't uh, usable for water, but these are first world problems because there are people who are freezing and have no access to anything other than their cars um, for heat. And the gas has run out and the food stores, distribution centers have run out of food and electricity and meat and milk have spoiled. So it is critical right now in Texas. There are many, many people who are in very, very bad shape. And Powered by People, Beto's group is doing outreach to elderly and there are people who are able to then get those elderly to warming centers or get them some firewood or food to get them through while we deal with this crisis. So if anybody can join the call and do outreach, it would be very much appreciated. Okay. Boy, that takes me from my cosmic um, uh, ruminations uh, right back down to earth. And I think that actually also responds to the question of um, you know, why we need distinctions and boundaries and so that we can all live here together and we can reach out to each other. So Andrea, thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll second that if anyone wants to help by contacting that group or participating in the uh, uh, Zoom outreach and the um, link is in the chat. Thank you. Thank you. If um, there, there's another um, teaching that if we weren't here in this physical world of separation, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do mitzvahs. And that's why God made us. That's why God made this world so that we could do acts of kindness and justice towards one another. That can't happen in the supernal realm. Uh, and uh, that's another of the kind of mm, ethical teachings that emerges from why we are here. So if you would, I wanna show you um, part two of his teaching. It's a little longer and, uh, um, but, I just really, really like what he's doing. So if you'll allow me, I'm gonna share the screen again and share with you his second part of his teaching. Ruth Hirsch says, Andrea, that address is for a Zoom. Is there another way to be in touch? Does, does Beto's organization have a website? If you have that, yeah. could you put that in too, please? Sure, will do. Thanks. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna share my screen again. This is Rabbi David Foreman, and welcome to Parsha Tetzava. You are watching Alaf Beta. 
Last week in Parsha Truma, I suggested to you that the Kruvim, which appear three times in the Mishkan, these cherubs, usher us through three partitions on our way to creating a world, as it were, for God. God made a little apartment for us in his everything. We call that our universe. We reciprocate by making a little apartment for him. We call that the tabernacle, the Mishkan. What I'd like to explore with you today is how do we even go about this business of trying to make a world for God? You know, when God made our little apartment for us, when God made the universe, God had to create a very carefully constructed universe in order for it to be able to support life. The constants of the universe had to be very finely tuned in order for it to work for beings that are carbon-based, that breathe air, that live within a certain temperature range. And that's even before you get to all the delicate balance between the various force strings in the universe that allows for such things as stars and planets and all that good stuff out of which our universe is made. So if we're going to reciprocate, if we're going to create this little world, as it were, this little apartment that's perfectly suited for God within our world, I mean, how do we go about doing that? We have no idea what God's environment is like. How can we try to recreate something we have no concept of? Sounds insane. I'd like to suggest an audacious theory to you. There is a logic to how we do this, and the secret lies in the three partitions upon which we find the Kruvim in the tabernacle. I mentioned to you last week that those three partitions seem to mirror the three partitions, the three separations that God used when he created our world. And if you think carefully, there's a reason for that. If God created our world by installing three basic partitions, the only way we could get back to God's world is by going backwards through those partitions, by taking them down. You see, we may not know what God's world is like, but we do know one thing for sure. It's not like our world. So to get back to God's world, you'd have to deconstruct our world. Think of it this way. In any construction project, there's two kind of phases of construction. There's creating the infrastructure for something, the framework, and then creating the superstructure, the stuff that's built off of that framework. So think about it in terms of God creating the universe. I'd like to argue that the infrastructure is the Havdalot, the separations. There were three of them, and they created the conditions that allowed the universe to exist. Everything else was building on top of that. So to get back to that pristine world of God, that world before he started ordering and making things specifically for us, we'd have to clear away all that infrastructure. And that's what we do when we go backwards through the Havdalot, through the partitions in the Mishkan. It sounds like a crazy theory, but let's see if it actually works. Let's revisit those fundamental three Havdalot, those three partitions in creation we may find an intriguing one-to-one -one correspondence between those and the ones in the Mishkan. I'm going to read through the basic three Havdalot in creation with you. It's very hard to read the first chapter of Genesis. It doesn't seem like much of a scientific account of creation, at least as we currently understand the science. As I've often said, the Torah is a guidebook. It's not trying to be a science book. It's telling you what you need to know about creation so you can be a spiritual person and build your relationships properly. 
So I guess what I'm saying is that the Torah is going to take a decidedly human perspective upon events that happened in creation. And if you wanted to get back to the actual events, have some sense of what the Torah is talking about, you'd have to factor out the human perspective somehow, almost like an algebraic equation. Let x equal what happened sort of objectively in creation. Now multiply that by how all that matters to humans, in terms of what they need to know to live their lives, you're going to get the Torah's account of the six days of creation. So if you ever wanted to have some sort of inkling about X, about what actually objectively happened, you just have to sort of divide both sides of the equation by the human perspective, and then you'd be left with X, the objective account. Let's actually try it as we walk through the Torah's account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, focusing on the three great Havdalot, these three great infrastructure projects. The first Havdalah, the first great separation in the infrastructure of the world, was between light and darkness. And that sounds very simple, and God even gives these nice and simple human-sounding names. He called the light Yom, day, and he called the darkness Lila, night. But those are very human perspectives on what happened. God gave these names that we could relate to. We can relate today. We can relate tonight. Objectively, it can't have been night and day as we know it. The sun hadn't been created yet. And the truth is, as you begin to think about this strange separation between light and darkness, the more strange and otherworldly it actually becomes. Let's factor out the human element now and talk about what the Torah might really be telling. The first thing that God did was say by Yehi or let there be light. And most of us would imagine there's a bright light everywhere. All you see is light. It's huge, blinding whiteness. But then the Torah tells us something very strange. That God separated between darkness and light. But where is the darkness? It's all light. There is no darkness. What the Torah seems to be saying is that right there at that moment before God separated between darkness and the light actually had darkness mixed into it in some strange way. Now, we can't conceive of that. The world we live in, the post-separation world, doesn't admit of allowing darkness and light to coexist in that strange kind of way. But it's almost like we have to imagine some kind of crazy swirl of dark energy and light energy together. It's as if darkness is actually this something, not just a nothing. You can't swirl together a something and a nothing. You can swirl together a something and another something. There was this great light of energy and this dark energy. And actually, when you start thinking about that, that's actually what science tells us too. Dark energy and dark matter. It's the stuff that we can't see that's completely impervious to light. Light does not reflect off it. Light is not absorbed by it. It does not emit light. It is ultimate darkness, but it is there. We cannot ever see it. We perceive it indirectly. We know it's there because its gravitational pull exists. We can measure it, but it's dark. According to current theories, dark energy and dark matter actually account for 95% of the matter and energy in our universe. Only 5% of it is the light stuff, the stuff that we can see. So I'm speculating here, but I'm suggesting that maybe God's first great separation between dark energy, light energy, creates light as we know it. The first great infrastructure project. And what was the second? Well, according to the Torah, 
sky that's separated between upper water and lower water, lower water, seas, upper water, seems to be water vapor, clouds, in between that sky. What's the significance of having created this sky? Why is that better for us than if it were never there? If you think about what life would be like if it was never there, if there was just a big water world with no sky, we wouldn't have a place to breathe. I mean, human beings can't breathe water. We couldn't even move around. It's like God created this habitable human space for us where there's oxygen and all these nice things and space that we can walk in. And that's the significance of this sky space between these waters. Or, to be more precise about it, it's the human significance of this space. God's talking to us in human terms. See, now you have a place to move around and now you have a place to breathe. Isn't that good for you? But now factor out the human part and what do you get? Not the creation of habitable human space. You get the creation of space itself. If the first Habdallah was about creating light as we know it, the second Habdallah was about creating space as we know it. And what was the third great partition? Yehim orot berikiyah hashamayim. Let there be luminaries in the heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars. Now stop. If you were to think about what the significance of the sun is, you know, most of us would say, well, there would be no life without the sun. It's this great energy source. We have heat. It's wonderful. But the Torah doesn't talk about the sun that way. It talks about the sun as a marker of time. These luminaries are lahavdil ben ayom ben alayla, to separate between day and night. There to be signs to help you count days and to help you count years. You tell time with light and dark cycles of the heavenly luminaries. One light and dark cycle here on earth, we call that a day. One light and dark cycle of the moon, we call that a month. One light and dark cycle in terms of how long the nights are, we call that a year. The luminaries give us a way of marking time, of helping us humans find our place in time, so we don't feel quite so disoriented. Now what might the Torah really be talking about here? Factor out the human part. You get the creation of time itself. The three great infrastructure projects of creation, light as we know it, and space and time as we know it. It's what makes a habitable world for these carbon-based life forms we call humans. But God didn't need any of that for his own existence. So to create God's world, you'd go backwards through these partitions to undo the infrastructure. And now let's talk about the three great partitions in the Mishkan. The first partition, the first place on the outside where you meet the Kruvim, on the Uriot, on the curtains. What do those separate between? They separate between the Mishkan and the outside world. So there you are, you're in the outside world, the butterflies are chirping, the sun is shining, and you go through the Uriot and you're inside the Mishkan and you look up and what don't you see? You don't see the heavenly luminaries anymore. Symbolically at least, we've gotten rid of them. And now you're in the Mishkan and you're looking at the second partition, the parochet, the curtain, with its kruvin woven into it. And that separates, according to the Torah, between the holy and the holy of holies, the most sacred space of the Mishkan. Now what's the difference between these two spaces? People could be in the holy, but not in the holy of holies. The Torah warns that if you go into the holy of holies, you die, because it's non-habitable human space. 
That's what happens when you go through the second partition. The second partition in creation was the partition that created habitable human space, created the rakia. Once you go through that partition backwards, you're not in habitable human space anymore. So, of course, human beings can't live there. Only one person is ever allowed there. It's the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, but what must he be wearing? Not his regular clothes, described in this week's Barsha, the clothes of gold, but special clothes. And what color were they? They were white, all white. Why do you think that would be? Where are you now after you've penetrated back through the second great Havdalah in creation? What realm are you in? Light. The only thing that exists in this non-human world is light. So, of course, the suit that you would have to wear to be able to survive would be a suit of light. And then there you are. You're in the Holy of Holies. You're the Kohen Gadol wearing his white clothes. And you look at the only thing there. It's the Holy Ark. And what do you see? Well, remember, you've passed through the second boundary, the boundary that created space itself. And now something about the Aron seems strange. It helps us understand a mysterious thing that the Gemara tells us. Makom Aron Eino Minamida, the Ark, didn't take up any space in the Mishkan. Crazy! Well, the Gemara has its whole mathematical calculation. The width of the temple it was only 20 amot, and yet the Gemara knows from elsewhere that there were 10 amot of free space on either side of the Aron of the Holy Ark. The Gemara draws the inexplicable conclusion that the Ark itself didn't take up any space. Well, where is the Ark? It's in the realm of no space, so of course it doesn't look like it takes up any space. Okay, so there you are. You're in the Holy of Holies, and you're looking at the last, final separation. It's the Kaporet, and there are the two cherubs, the two Kruvim on top of it. And the Kaporet separates between what's inside the Ark and what's outside the Ark. Well, what is inside the Ark? It's the two tablets. The Torah that was given by God to Moses is a strange Midrashic text in Bamidbaraba that tells us something almost unimaginable. That Torah, before it was given to Moses at Sinai, that Torah that took the form of the words on those two tablets, Medrash says, before it went on the tablets, it was words of black fire, written on parchment of white fire. Black fire on white fire. Black energy and white energy. It was the swirl. Welcome to God's world. We've recreated, so to speak, this little piece of God's world inside our own by going backwards, symbolically, mystically, architecturally, through the three partitions that God put into place, constructing our universe. I love that. Um, it just brings me back to the very core instruction of this Parsha. Build me a dwelling place 
so that I might dwell in your midst. And so we have to, with our consciousness and intention, know that there's, there's God's, God's energy that underlies all of the dimensions that the Holy One and God's great love created so that we carbon-based beings could exist. Uh, have fun looking at Rabbi Foreman's uh, teachings. Uh, I just I thought it was marvelous, just marvelous. Um, Andrea included um, an article in the chat for ways to contribute um, and, and help the folks in Texas who are suffering right now. Oh, I'm so glad many of you enjoyed that. I hope it spoke to you on, on a variety of levels. Uh, and I'll, let it, I'll just let it stand there. Uh, what a beautiful Torah teaching. So I just, again, wanna thank, um, thank Rabbi Foreman for taking us on that journey. That's what a good Torah teaching is. It takes us on a journey into a higher space. A trippy Jewish twilight zone. Okay, Rob. <laughs> so the website is alephbeta.org, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A.org. There, Gwen put it into the chat for us. Thank you, Gwen. <laughs>